0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Von Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security, and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Center for International and Defense Policy.
1: And I'm Steve Seidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. So, Stephanie, how are you doing?
0: Doing great. I'm back from a long weekend, feeling refreshed, even if it was a camping once again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no.
0: <laughs> yeah. I Can you experiment. count how many
1: bug bites you have?
0: Yeah, it's uh, yeah, but there are many, but uh, <laughs> it was really a, a beautiful weekend, and I got to experiment with paddleboarding. I'd never done that, and it's harder than it looks. Have you ever tried that?
1: I have not. It's something I've been thinking about for, for a while, but I haven't gotten to it yet.
0: And you were away, uh, and you've been traveling, so I have so many questions about your traveling. <laughs> Where to start?
1: Uh, well, we I went to my hometown of Philadelphia because my mother is, is old enough that she can't really travel anymore, so our vacations now center on all going to her, and I got to see almost all of the relatives on my side of the family, including my daughter, who I hadn't seen since December of 2019. And so getting to be with everybody, but particularly her, that was, that was huge. It really was a fun week, and it was a meaningful week. We, I think we all appreciated and valued the, the time together more so than in the past. I mean, the, in the past, we could take these things for granted, but the hugs were longer, the laughs were louder. It was just a, a terrific week.
0: Mm, and it was your birthday.
1: And it was right after my birthday. So my sister made me a birthday cake, a really good King Arthur recipe, uh, apple caramel cake. So that was very tasty. I did not want for desserts. We were staying at a hotel near the Reading Terminal, which has a lot of shops in it. And my family loves cannolis. So I had some cannolis. My, one of my nieces was really nervous about us all being crowded into my mom's apartment. So uh, we ended up having a bagel picnic in the park outside her place. Uh, One morning uh, before everybody started taking off. And so that was really cool. I was the one who was the bagel boy marching down across Philadelphia to get the the fresh bagels and lox and cream cheese. And uh, the one thing about this next generation is they eat a lot of lox. So I had to make sure we got a lot more. One day, a bunch of us drove down to the Jersey shore uh, because my cousin was there with his kids and his kids are much younger than ours. So it was fun playing around with a sixth grader and eighth grader before they go back to school. Did get to throw around the frisbee on the sand. And then, you know, they kept on forcing me to go into the cold, cold waters, but I had fun playing with them in the waves. So it's, oh, it's, I think that's my target age group for hanging out with kids is six to 10, uh, maybe 12, 11, pretty good with that age group. And I I tend to be the fun uncle. So I had a really good time hanging out with them.
0: That sounds lovely. And on the traveling side, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of. Talk about the border reopening and what was your experience like? Although wouldn't be necessarily typical for a Canadian because you're a dual citizen, so presumably uh, your your access is quite smooth. But can you tell us a bit about mm-hmm. the traveling experience when it comes to you? You took a flight, right? No, I yeah. drove. We drove.
1: We drove okay. we drove, across, drove nearby. We went past the thousand mile uh, through the thousand mile bridge, so we got to wave at Kingston as we drove by. The border was very easy for us because we traveled before. Americans could enter Canada. So our trip was perfectly timed that way. Uh, there was very little, there was no line entering the United States at that moment in time. They asked us more questions, but they didn't need vaccine. You know, if you're entering the United States, they currently don't have, as an American living in Canada, you don't have to show your vaccination status. You have to explain why you need to go. And I said, you know, old mother. And they're like, okay, go through. It was very, very straightforward. On the way back, we had to download the ArriveCAN app. When that required then for us to take pictures with our cell phones of our vaccination documents, and also enter in information about our vaccinations, which vaccinations we had, when did we have them, and then we had to get a test in Philadelphia within three days of our travel, yeah. and so we paid extra to make sure that we got the results before we traveled because we were a little nervous about just getting ones from the right aid or the CVS. So we went to a place and 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 they gave us the results within a few hours. It was only my second test over the course of the pandemic, and I'd forgotten what. It feels like to have something shoved that far up your nose. It's it's <laughs> not fun. And then we drove back and it was sort of reverse of the process. When we when we came into the United States, the Northern uh, New York, very little mask wearing. As we got closer to Philadelphia, more mask wearing. It was indoors. And then once we were in Philadelphia itself, people were pretty good about wearing masks, but not everybody was. And then when we hit the border, uh, we had to show our test results. We had to show our vaccination documents. And then they gave us a choice of being tested. 500 meters down the road or going home and being tested at home. But if the idea was, if you go home, then you can't leave your house until you get the results. Whereas if you get tested 500 meters down the road, then you're not quarantined when you get home and you'll get the results pretty quickly. So we chose that. And Again, there weren't that many cars, so it wasn't that hard. And the fun part about that was I was surprised when the nurse was counting you have to you have to shove the thing in your nose not as deeply but you have to hold it there for 15 seconds and so she counted one mississippi two mississippi three mississippi I'm like Am I went back in the United States? Because whenever I'm in Canada playing Ultimate Frisbee, they say one steamboat, two steamboat, three teams steamboat, or a bateau, deux bateaux, trois bateaux. Uh, so that was, that was kind of funny. It reminded me of my earlier days playing Ultimate in Montreal. And then we were through. And then we got the test results the next day. And so I'm negative, negative, negative for that. And uh, it wasn't hard. Now, I think it's going to be harder and easier now because the, now it's random testing at the border. So that's easier for most people except for who gets selected out, but it's gonna be harder because there's gonna be more people. And I, I think that's, just, we saw the lines yesterday, pictures on, on Twitter of, of the lines. So the, I think it's gonna be harder, you know, just the traffic wise. What I'm really waiting for is to find out when the airlines will open up more and fly directly from Ottawa to the United States. Mm-hmm. I've got some trips lined up and uh, I certainly would like to be able to not have to go through b- Montreal or Toronto to get to wherever I'm going. I'd like to pr- like to have my first landing spot in the U.S. so that went I don't have to grab my bags and go through security again and again and again so we'll see when that happens but that's still left up in the air.
0: Mm, so any tips for people thinking about traveling to the U.S. potentially after the uh, August 21st?
1: Uh, once, once, the Americans, once the Canadians are let in the United States I'd say if you're driving you know uh, probably avoid the bigger rest stops and go to the smaller ones just so that you're not in huge crowds, I had friends of mine talk about going to the en route so, alongside on alongside on 401 and how crazy they were. And so, if, the best way to avoid COVID is to avoid large masses of people in buildings. So that's that's one tip. And just be prepared. We had multiple copies of all of our documents, so we had them at the ready. Pay attention to the website and download the app. The app is actually pretty easy to use. So. The, that, that's all you really have to do. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated, but you do have to be prepared to find a place wherever you're going that will test you so you can be able to show your tests and you have to get the right kind of tests before you come back. And so mm-hmm. the really strange thing is what happens if you're only going for 24 hours or, or 36 hours or 48 hours? And I think the answer to that is you can get tested in Canada and show those tests on your way back if you're just going over there for a quick trip.
0: Okay. So when you say vaccination docs, those are just photocopies of your two vaccination confirmations.
1: That's right. I mean, the, the, the strange thing right now is, is that we don't have real certified documents, but we do have the printouts from the emails we received. And so we, we, print them out and then we with the app we can take pictures of them so that the app has them and so that way and but you still want to have paper copies with you. Yeah. So now I have multiple copies of of those to carry around with me whenever I need them.
0: Interesting. Well, we'll continue to monitor the border policies and on Canada has opened up its border to US travelers and I suppose Us Canadians are still waiting on a U.S. decision to reopen our border and allow us to visit the U.S. Do you think that the U.S. is stalling on the decision regarding the Canadian border because of Mexico, that it wants the same policy for both Canada and Mexico when it comes to reopening the border?
1: I think that's exactly it. I think you're exactly on target that. I don't know why they insist on that, because in the in the past, there have been differential policies, I think, on, on some measures between the Canadian border and the Mexican border. But because the Republicans are always eager to leap on the Democrats about the surges of people coming from Mexico, which is not really that surging, and the disease is already here, and that's where it's not the Mexicans or the illegal immigrants that are causing this fourth wave. But it's something that becomes a political issue. So I think that's exactly why they're dithering on this right now. And it's interesting. There's a lot of demand by both Canadians and Americans to let Americans into Canada. I don't know if there's the same kind of pressure being put politically in the United States to let Canadians come in to the United States. I mean, I think that's does hurt tourism in the northern reaches of the United States. And I'm sure if, if people want to go to the hellscape that is Florida, I think Florida would want to have more Canadians there. But I just don't see that there's the same kind of political pressure as there was on the canadians to open up their side of the border. so let's let's turn to afghanistan we can either talk about the refugees and they're being welcomed into some places not others or we could talk about the current situation in afghanistan itself do you have a preference
0: no i don't really have a preference of course uh the, the two are are very much tied right now it feels like the the taliban might regain control of the entire country by the 9-11 commemoration, or at least within the next six months or so. So it's a very demoralizing situation. Mm-hmm. I think a very precarious one for Afghans. It's a very concerning one, I think, also for service members who have served one or multiple tours in, in the country and who are now seeing 20 years of involvement unravel every day. We're reading about the Taliban's latest territorial advance. And the U.S. and NATO's withdrawal is looking more and more like a a retreat from my vantage point. But that doesn't really answer your question. Where do you want to
1: start? Well, there's so many places to start. I I am sanded by what's going on here, but it does remind me of some of the bigger lessons from the Afghanistan war, which is if a country is in need of outside help to deal with an an encounter with an insurgency, it's probably not going to be successful because it really needs to be done by the locals. It really The whole idea of a, a counterinsurgency is to get support for the local government. And, you know, there are a lot of things working against the Afghan government, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's the drug economy, whether it was the fractured effort by the outsiders, but it was also our allies within the country. Karzai was not particularly helpful along the way. And so I am immensely frustrated by what's going on now, but I don't see... You know, the United States sticking around for a year or two or three to make a difference if it if 20 years is not going to make a difference then what's another couple so there's never a good time to leave but I've become much more skeptical about the use of force as a way to build governance and to deal with these kinds of problems so it's it's unfortunate but I just don't I just don't know when you know I don't I don't think the United States should stick around and or NATO should stick around either a to prove a point that they're resolved because if 20 years is not going to approved resolution why would 21 or 22 so I think that's that's something to think about and but what, what that does lead to is we do owe a debt to the folks who helped us so I wish our governments were working faster on bringing the interpreters and others who helped us in this effort. But I also feel guilty about that, too, because one of the dynamics of these wars is the outsiders always have more money. So we end up getting the best people from the local population to work for us, which means they're not actually working for the government of the day. So we're depriving the government of the best brains and best hearts in this effort. And then when we leave, we go, wait, we owe these people refuge, which we do. But then that means that there will be a brain drain occurring. So just all kinds of nasty trade-offs and difficult decisions to make. But we do owe the people who helped us that we've now endangered through their working with us, we do owe them a place to live, a safe place to live.
0: Yeah, if they're being hunted down and and the Taliban are going from door to door, then they're not going to be much good to the government of, of the day. In any case, I do think that, that Canada and other NATO allies have to roll out efficient programs to fast track these special visas or refugee claims because there's been a few snafus, at least in Canada, with how this has been rolled out and in any situation like this, the security conditions being what they are, it's very challenging to process applications. I think we need to acknowledge that upfront. But still the coverage that we've seen in Canada shows that, you know, when this was rolled out, the paperwork was quite complex to fill out, you know, if you don't have access to Wi-Fi or computer or workspace. So if you have a three-day window essentially, which is what was communicated initially, to fill out something that's as complex as a passport application. Uh, with multiple online forms, and then you have to scan these documents while you are essentially on the run. How realistic is the process that's been rolled out for these Afghan interpreters, drivers, uh, and support staff that have been helping the Canadian government while uh, they were in Afghanistan? And then, you know, of course, another issue that came up was the issue of uh, eligibility. And it was communicated that applicants had to be living in Afghanistan to be eligible. So those who had already fled the country were not eligible, which translates into a bit of a risky incentive for applicants who might essentially now want to return to Afghanistan in the hopes of gaining refugee status in Canada. So there were a lot of aspects of how this program was initially rolled out that were heavily criticized. But one thing that's been, I think, touching to witness was how Canadians have have mobilized. So of course, we saw Afghan Canadians protesting on Parliament Hill, along with some veterans of the war in Afghanistan. And uh, in terms of, of our own community of practice, certainly folks from the Conference on Defense Associations have also uh, appealed for help and, and support. So we'll see that the, the planes are just starting to, to arrive, and the Minister of Immigration has promised Thousands of Afghan refugees will be coming and resettling to, to Canada over the next few weeks. But yeah, we can also look to other countries to see what they've been doing. Certainly, the, the U.S. has drawn the ire of, of Turkey with its uh, resettlement uh, plan because uh, they've hinted at the uh, possibility that Afghans could get to a third country to file their application. And so uh, Turkey has witnessed an, an influx as a preferred migration route for for Afghans. So I think we're starting to see now more Afghan refugees in Turkey and, and Greece. And, and I think that when it comes to what we witnessed, you know, a few years ago with the EU migration uh, crisis spurred on by the Syrian civil war, you see old wounds uh, being reopened. So, of course, this issue is going to flare up much more than what we're seeing right now.
1: Mm. Yeah, we're already seeing... Some pushback by the Europeans, so that at least six countries in the EU have said that they don't want Afghan refugees. And that's really troublesome because again, we are jointly responsible for the situation. And so we should be dealing with consequences. You know, there's lessons that that these countries have learned from the flood of, of Syrian refugees that they got and what that meant for their political system. So we had xenophobia, we got political prudence, we have all different kinds of things going on that's gonna make it hard for these Afghans to, to find the safe harbor. And there's gonna be more of them because even if Kabul and even Kandahar don't, don't fall, the violence is gonna increase. I do push back about everybody saying, Well, there's gonna be a civil war in Afghanistan. I'm like, when has there not been a civil war in Afghanistan? It's been going on since 1979. We were participants in it, but it, it never stopped. And so the question then is, is how do we mitigate the ongoing civil war without committing more troops? to the battlefield
0: well there's a question of the airstrikes so right now the u.s primarily is uh, supporting the afghan government with some airstrikes but it's not quite clear at this point how long they'll do this for Mm -hmm. Do you think that this should be continued on for as long as necessary or when you say you know no true commitments you're primarily referring to ground troops
1: i think it's a really good question i'm having flashbacks to vietnam because The reason why Vietnam, South Vietnam fell so fast in 1975 was that the United States no longer was providing this kind of support for the South Vietnamese. This time, it's a little more difficult because the Taliban are now having fights within the cities, and that makes it much harder to use air air power. So I think that that continuing to use air power to support the Afghan government is the least we can do, and probably the most we can do uh, in the near term to help them out since we're no longer willing to put troops on the ground. So I think I think that can, can and should continue. How do you feel about that?
0: I'm in agreement with you. And then the other commitment that, that was made, and I'm just not sure whether the U.S. and NATO allies will really be able to follow through with that, as it providing security assistance to the Afghan security forces? And here, I think there's an interesting contrast between the situation in Afghanistan and in Iraq, because in Iraq, the Biden administration also announced that combat operations would be coming to an end, but they'll be keeping the same level of troops on the ground to provide capacity building and and training support for Iraqi security forces. In Afghanistan, we've seen a different turn of events with the full withdrawal, you know, honoring the terms of the peace deal, which now is a bit in tatters, uh, if you ask me. So we're seeing two different strategies in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, but definitely overall, I think a, a reorientation of the U.S. force posture globally uh, with Afghanistan and, and Iraq probably fading into the background and then um, maybe a, a, a true pivot this time to, to Asia.
1: Our podcasts don't always end happily, which is why I have the RNR picks. We focused on very silly stuff today. I do think that in the larger scheme of things, we are making progress in the pandemic. Our vaccination rates are really high. And so I think the interview we have with Dr. Caroline Colleen is going to be very helpful for explaining sort of what has happened, how we could have done things a little bit differently, and and what we can expect to see in the near future. She uses math to, to model these things. She's been doing it for quite some time, although working on COVID has been obviously something new to her. And she's been consulted quite heavily by the authorities at least in in, in provinces where they actually want to make policy based on models rather than see the pandemic prove the models to be true, which is what's happened in Ontario. So at least she's in a a province that's responsive to science.
0: Yeah, your cynicism really shines through.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. It's just been brutal watching Doug Ford flail throughout all this and still not requiring medical folks to be vaccinated just drives me nuts.
0: I agree. Well, it's nice talking to you. I'm glad that you're back safely in the country. I'm happy you had some good times with your family. And I do hope that, you know, when it comes to our professional network, we'll be able to have similar good times with cakes and gatherings in a not so distant future.
1: Yes, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing you back in Ottawa at some point, Steph. And uh, good luck, you know, preparing your kids for the fall.
0: Thank you so much. We'll talk soon, Steve.
1: We'd like to welcome Dr. Caroline Colleen, professor of math. You're our first math professor on the podcast, and also Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for evolution, infection, and public health at Simon Fraser University. Welcome to Battle Rhythm. Hello. We'd like to talk to you today because there's a lot of confusion over the past, what, 15, 16, 17 months about the course of the pandemic, and you've been doing a lot of work for quite a while trying to get ahead of us and try to figure out what's going to happen and what works and what doesn't work. And so I guess the first question is, is what is a mathematician doing, being quoted by all the newspapers about the pandemic?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So mathematical modeling has been one of the key tools in this pandemic. It's how we first we see a brand new virus. It's one of the ways that we estimate parameters and try to determine what's going on. How fast is it spreading? How many people is it spreading to? is it infectious before people show symptoms or can we focus on symptomatic individuals and stop most of the transmission that way? And we got involved with that kind of question very early on using some data that were made public by uh, Singapore and also by Tianjin, China. And we looked at how much transmission is happening before symptoms and we got big numbers, like 50% even. And uh, that, you know is in the context where people with symptoms knew about the virus and were going home. So, of course, that reduced their transmission. But it did already show that this was going to be a hard virus to contain and it was going to be different from SARS, the first SARS, in that way. Mathematical models since then have been used for everything from figuring out how much more severe COVID is in the very elderly, what the risk factors are, to trying to make projections and forecasts for case counts and for healthcare utilization to understanding vaccination, how many people do we need to vaccinate, what's the best rollout, what's the difference between, you know, the first and second doses in terms of the population of the virus, how it's going to go. And now, of course, moving to estimating effects of evolution, looking at the genomic data, looking at variants, are they doing different things, are they having different properties and different parameters. So we've really used math throughout the pandemic for lots of different purposes.
1: And so I guess the first thing is that you've been doing, you were doing the stuff before the. This particular disease broke out, and so the question is: Is you mentioned that it could the possibility of asymmetric spread was one thing that made it more severe, more problematic. But even before this happened, you know, you were modeling the future. Did you see a pandemic like this coming, and has it played out in ways that you would have expected, or has it played out in ways that you would not expect?
2: So we weren't really modeling future pandemics from as yet unknown viruses and how they might spread. So I wasn't really working exactly on pandemic preparedness. My main research before this pandemic was in infectious disease and modeling, but a lot of that was focused around how do we use sequence data from pathogens to understand how they're transmitting? So of course, now we're doing that with COVID. We were doing that with tuberculosis before um, and with other, sometimes other infections. And we were also looking at just groups of diverse pathogens and how that diversity plays out like drug resistant versus drug sensitive types Mm -hmm. of bacteria. Or vaccination of Streptococcus pneumoniae. So we were looking at diverse infections and how they evolve and how their populations change and how they transmit. But we weren't really looking at okay, what's going to come out of a bat and what's it going
1: to be. <laughs> Very fair then. So I guess what, one thing that you have been concerned about is the variant. That this is something that you know, given what you what you were just talking about, suggests that you were probably worried about variants early on. And now we have at least four that we care a lot about, and that's the ones we know about. So I'm assuming that this is. Something You've been tracking, and and you're not surprised by the fact that there are these variants out there that have uh, been more alarming than the the original COVID-19 that we were worried about this time last year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So scientists around the world have been monitoring SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, and looking at how it's changing and, and looking at its diversifying and evolving population. There were, last I checked, more than one and a half million virus sequences in GizAid, the one of the public uh, data repositories for for the virus. And what's really amazing is we saw kind of for the first six to eight months, really sort of neutral, you know, nothing special going on. There were, of course, some some things there. But then, around the time what's now called Alpha, the B117 variant, emerged, we started seeing that kind of structure and really strong signs that selection was acting. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we mostly had a population that was completely susceptible. Most of us in Western jurisdictions had not had COVID, we mostly still haven't. In Canada, probably under 5% of Canadians have had COVID, we're still mostly susceptible in that sense. But we hadn't been vaccinating yet. So selection was really favoring increased transmissibility. what we saw with those variants was, you got it, increased transmissibility. So we saw that B117 was transmitting more than the regular COVID and kind of took over in the UK and then in other countries too, and really needed strong distancing measures to roll it back. Since then, we've had other variants emerge. And now I think the selection is going to start changing in Western jurisdictions because we have higher vaccination levels, including some countries with very high levels of vaccination. So now selection will start favoring variants that can get into vaccinated individuals and can still transmit.
1: Well, that's a scary thing to say, scary thing to hear, uh, because we've been you know, imagining that the variant the vaccines are magic bullets that you know they've been so so wildly successful and so quick so quickly successful compared to you know the years it has taken for previous vaccines to be developed. We shouldn't be betting all of our chips on the vaccines alone. But given that the quality of our political leadership in many of the world's countries has meant that doing other things has been really really hard, I, I guess the question is is how comfortable are you right now with the pace of vaccinations versus the pace of the variants? given that other programs or other policies are becoming harder and harder to implement with politicians pushing back on social distancing, closing the economy down, things like that.
2: Yeah, so you know, in March we were talking about the the race between the vaccination and the variant, so we were not winning it in March. We knew B one one seven was was in Canada, was moving across Canada, and we knew it was rising underneath overall a trajectory of declining case counts in total. So you can have a a rising thing that is small in the context of a bigger pool of things that isn't going down, and that kind of message sort of escaped notice sadly. And we did see rises of those high transmission variants and we were not mostly vaccinated at that time. Mm now it's different now you know we are mostly vaccinated we're vaccinating in canada very rapidly still and so in in the short term we are now in a position to kind of win that race if we have variants that vaccines work against so i think you know the good news is yeah these vaccines do work they work phenomenally they're fantastic they're safe they are the cornerstone of our way out of this pandemic right now and they work or they seem to work against the variants we have That's the good news. The bad news I think is that that vaccine escape is sort of partially here with B1351, which I think is probably called beta or maybe gamma. I'm not quite sure which of those it is now. Showing that a little bit of reduced efficacy there. The Delta variant, we had uh, some work indicating a lower efficacy with only one dose of the vaccine. So we need to get those second doses out. But that there are signs, you know, with antibodies and measurements and so on, that 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 kind of partial immune escape is is already with us. Mm-hmm. And you know, selection hasn't had that six to eight months or a year to be acting in favor of vaccine escape. It took that six to eight months to figure out pathways to increase transmission. But on the other hand, you know, the human immune response is broad and there's cross immunity from variant to variant, even from coronaviruses to other coronaviruses, from colds and things. So, you know, I think we can we can imagine that the most likely outcome here is these vaccines continue to be awesome. Hopefully everybody gets vaccinated vaccinated, not just 70%, you know, whatever targets they're, they're saying, but really like almost everybody. And we shift to a kind of endemic mode where we still see COVID every now and then, but it's mild in vaccinated people. And it's there's so few people that get COVID because most people are vaccinated. You know, I think that's the plan. And that's the path that we've carved for ourselves out of this. I think it's just a question of this is a new virus. We have a diverse global population of this virus on which selection can act. Its evolution has in humans has kind of just begun. So I think it's not clear where it's going.
1: I guess it does it drive you crazy when you hear politicians or policymakers say things like, well, the model said it was going to go up, but we wanted to wait till we saw the the increase in hospitalizations before we did anything about it that was sort of the Ontario response
2: yeah, that is frustrating and that was especially frustrating with the b one one seven variant you know in mm-hmm. in February and January even you know it was known gold star amazing data from the UK about transmissibility data about severity was later but of course mm-hmm. 10 times as many of something that's the same severity is worse than just a few more of something that's more severe. So that transmission, I think people didn't really get that that transmission advantage was so profound in terms of healthcare utilization. So yeah, waiting until we really have a problem is not the precautionary principle that one would hope for. (laughs)
1: Well, I mean, it's really stunning because we've known since last summer that hospitalization, and deaths, and ICUs are all lagging indicators, which means that things are going to catch up in a bad, bad way. And it just, we wish our politicians weren't quite so um, weak on this uh, in terms of, you know, realizing what was ahead of us. I mean, we knew what was ahead of us. There was that famous press conference in February where the doctor was asked, well, this sounds like a disaster. He's like, yeah, Probably up but yeah it's
2: like yeah and i think we did know and i think you know it's important to outline some of the choices we didn't make throughout so we should not have set up that it's either widespread distancing forever or we just have covid around you know there were options certainly by february to be expanding the use of rapid tests to be doing rapid tests in vast numbers around variant cases in fact montreal did this and largely avoided variant wave by doing some of these things around you you know, not waiting for official confirmation that something was a variant, but by being really proactive around those individuals. So, so we didn't have to kind of sit back and say, well, you know, they better keep all the distancing measures in place forever, because that's the only way that I don't think the scientific community should have been or, or you know, in my case, was advocating for that. Uh, but I think it has been posed as a kind of dichotomy, both between all distancing all the time and doing nothing or doing less, letting cases grow and the dichotomy between well, you know, economically we need X, Y, Z, so we need to reopen without an acknowledgement that actually if economically you really need X, Y, Z, what you need is you don't just need that for three weeks until you have more cases and your hospital is overwhelmed again. You actually need that for longer. So you should be building out a plan mm-hmm. that allows you to sustain that reopening. And that could have involved better measures at the borders and much more widespread use of rapid testing.
1: Well, and that raises a few questions. One is the pattern of vaccinations. I, I in terms of who to vaccinate. And you know, as to someone who's fifty-five, the creeping down from the eighty year olds to fifty five sounds a lot better to me. But what we've seen from sort of the outbreak in the third wave, it really hit sort of younger people who are in particular parts of the the economy where they're getting more exposed. So I take it from your previous statements to the media that you would have preferred to see a, a different vaccination strategy.
2: Yeah, so we did quite a lot of modeling work on this. And I think it's really important to set models in a Canadian context or in a context of your own local data when you think about these questions, because what we found was in Canada... The advantage of preventing transmission by vaccinating people who are at high risk of being exposed in the first place huge compared to that oldest first rollout. And I, I think it, you know, we modeled 80 plus first and long-term care first and some healthcare workers and in indigenous communities first. We never challenged that. And I think that's right. But after those individuals, we compared essential workers and then everybody else age-based and we various other things. We compared that to just age-based. So 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, mm-hmm. and so on working down versus 80s and the the others long-term care, and then kind of high risk, high contact. And actually we found that you can prevent more deaths and more hospitalizations and more exposures and infections and more long COVID by protecting the people who are at risk of exposure. And that's like, fundamentally it comes down to not everyone is equally likely to be exposed at all. And what's better than having a vaccine if you're 55, what's better than having a vaccine in six weeks? actually having it in nine weeks, but not being exposed for those nine weeks is better because even though the vaccines are great, they're not a hundred percent. So if you can prevent being exposed at all, groups we saw the biggest impact for were actually the people in their 60s and 50s because for one thing some of them are essential workers and for another they were the ones who were kind of most impacted by the extra exposures and those in their 70s who who would have been exposed of course they they would have had a huge advantage in our in our models and we did we did convey that and it did the story did come through and I think it really resonated with those direct effect stories about the burden of the pandemic in essential workers and in Neighborhoods with lots of essential workers, and so some provinces did did take that route. BC was one of them. Ontario did a hotspot kind of prioritization, and BC did some of that too. So we were happy to see that, and I think we did really feel the benefits of it in BC. I think it did really contribute to a rapid decline of cases, and in well, was that in April? Uh, I would check yeah. that rapid decline in whatever it was.
1: I think I think April was the right month. Yes, I guess one of the the one pushback I would have in that is and this is again coming from somebody who lives in Ontario where the government didn't handle the rollout that all that w- wonderfully is, I guess it's, you know, would have required more government, more decision-making, more bureaucracy to select, make decision rules that would select essential workers or the, the people who are most at risk of transmission 20 to 40 year olds in the warehouses and Uber drivers and all the rest versus going by age. Age was simple. You can get max shots and max arms simply because those are A, the most Eager people, we we can you know discriminate based on the website on one you know one data point, which is what what year were you born yep. versus the ma- you know I'm I'm just curious about the math of it because obviously that's what you do, and I'm wondering about the math of it. Is is it you know would the advantage of hitting the higher transmission people work even though that would have required us to have you know government making decisions that were harder or that, that the websites would have been harder to craft or or finding these people have been harder.
2: Yeah, so, okay, we don't do the math of the logistics and I won't claim any expertise on the logistics questions, but, you know, reasoning through it, take a small place that's far away from your central vaccine storage and go, okay, so 80 plus. All right, household, I'm going to come back in a week for the 79-year-old sibling of the person I just vaccinated, who's 82. And then you go, "Okay, household, I'm going to come back in 4 weeks for the 50-year-old child of the seven, who just brought the 79-year-old to their vaccine appointment." But no, 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 I'm not going to vaccinate you right here and now. You got to come back in 4 weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to come back in, in another three weeks for your, for your spouse, who's 49, who also came to this appointment today, but who we didn't vaccinate. And then, uh, the, actually the person who drove you guys here this morning, (laughs) 25 year old son, and he's going to have to wait till September before he, like, isn't it, there's an efficiency there to just saying, okay, households, like, come on. Similarly with a tower block, similarly with a workplace, workplaces, Mm -hmm. And be involved. There are many, many people who would be employed in the hospitality industry in Canada who hadn't been working because of the impact of the pandemic on that sector. Many of them are very well able to do logistics to shuttle people, to coordinate crowd movement and other things. So I'm not sure that the logistics is so much easier by age than it would be by jurisdiction if you have hotspots in areas where there are a lot of essential workers or by workplace. So I'm not sure it's easier. And I guess the other thing, thing is, you know, given the costs and the, the challenges of, of having more cases of COVID and having to do distancing for months longer or having to have your healthcare systems overwhelmed, like those are hard too. There may not be an easy choice and we shouldn't be saying, oh yeah, actually that's too hard. Let's just squander this opportunity to make the most effective use of a scarce resource. That's not how we want to think about it yeah
1: i'm a political scientist so i expect my politicians to squander uh, time and and resources if it's politically convenient for them but i guess the question now is you know the question that's been definitely in ontario i'm sort of curious as to as, as to whether you've looked at you know the low end of the age spectrum which is you know schools the risk of, of kids transmitting versus the costs of kids being out of school for well in ontario forever pretty much have you done any modeling looking at decisions about putting kids in schools, keeping them out of schools, giving the, whatever the prevalence of the diseases in the neighborhood kind of stuff.
2: We didn't model impacts of decisions about schools in general. We don't have data or or expertise on kind of those decisions. We did write a paper about school transmission, and I still stand by it. It, You know, we wrote it in the fall and we had data about cluster sizes and outbreaks in reported outbreaks in schools. Here in BC, we have enjoyed the fact that schools, especially elementary schools, have pretty much been open. My kids have been in school the whole pandemic. Well, not, not in 2020, the schools closed. Uh, for most of the rest of the school year, and then they've been open this school year. And I think we have been lucky enough to have had just two exposure notifications the entire year from mm-hmm. our element. So so very lucky that way. Other areas have had more. But our, our work on schools basically said this, you know, the transmission in the classroom can be modeled as, you know, a combination of the infectiousness of the index case. So are you, are you unlucky? Do you get like a super spreader index case or highly infectious index case? And does that index case land in a high risk room? Or doing a high risk activity, so you can imagine that a place with the windows open and everybody's quiet and they're all sitting alone, to, you know, one point one meters apart, yeah, but they're yeah. at work. Versus you know a room where the windows are closed and it's hot and humid and they are singing and dancing and shouting and eating and all the things we know generate droplets and aerosols that can result in COVID transmission. So if you combine the kind of variability between individuals and the variability in rooms, what you find is you know kind of anything can happen. Often nothing happens and you, this is what BC, the stance BC has taken is transmission in schools is really, really rare and it hardly ever happens and schools are super safe and it's all great. But sometimes you can be unlucky and you have that infectious asymptomatic index case landing in a room where, you know, there's a high risk from the room or the activity or the the density and so on. And in that case, you can have a cluster that is sizable. And so we did modeling work on that. And I think, you know, it's been such a political topic that there hasn't really been anywhere in Canada that has systematically done the testing and done the work to really figure it out what is actually happening. You know, there's a lot of of challenges in doing that because if you have a parent and a child and they both test positive, but the child didn't have symptoms, if you really believe, or or many symptoms, if you believe that symptom strength is kind of a correlate of transmissibility, you might think, well, the parent infected the child. So the parent got it from somewhere and it's all adults who are doing all the transmitting. But if you think, well, the parent actually never left the house for weeks, it must have been the child. But really your priors on like what you think, Mm -hmm. how you think transmission works will impact the questions that you ask. The testing that you do so you know i in a way i wish bc had done huge studies that tested everybody and serially and all of this because if indeed in bc we figured out a way to keep schools open through a pandemic, like clearly the value of that is very high. Maybe our schools were bigger. Maybe they were newer. Maybe they were more well ventilated. Maybe the thing about the cohorts that we did was exactly right. Like maybe despite the fact that grade seven band was on, like maybe the fact that grade seven band was outside or was in the gym or however they did it, the world should know about that. But unfortunately, I think it's so political that it hasn't really been an area where there've been open data and open discussions around it. It gets very fraught very
1: quickly. That's a good slogan for the pandemic. It gets fraught very quickly. It's, it's very
2: fraught very quickly. Very, <laughs> yeah. very
1: fraught very quickly. I mean the, the I'm I'm a dual citizen, so I'm always looking at the United States data and it's always striking to see the patterns of vaccination and patterns of, of the spread and and you know it's become identity politics about whether you wear a mask and it's and it's become identity politics about whether you're going to be skeptical about the the vaccine. And so we see blue states having much higher vaccination rates than red states. And so I guess we're lucky in Canada, it hasn't been quite as bad politicizing it, but still obviously in Ontario, it's just such a hot issue about what to do and, you know, so everybody's met Doug Ford and so what's frustrating is that we can't do the science that you want which is do the random testing do enough testing to figure out what's really going on and then you can find out what interventions work and what interventions don't work
2: yeah and I think it's a real challenge um, with schools because because of those political things and also when it has been done it's you know you can do a pilot right so Fraser Health did do a lot of asymptomatic testing and in, in around variant cases I think it was in March mm-hmm. and or April and they did not find a lot of cases and great. But of course, you know, in in our modeling, that's what you would expect. If you do this a couple of times, you're unlikely to get one of those unfortunate events. So it could still be that it happens, that it's even a driver for transmission in schools and other settings, but that these few times that we looked you know, we just, those were the most, the majority of the cases when it's lucky. Or it could be that really there's something fundamentally going on that you're not going to see it. Yeah, I'm also extremely glad that we haven't decided to adopt identity politics as a prospective solution to this problem. It's, it seems like a very unlikely way to find a path out of the pandemic to uh, to link together identity and politics with our healthcare and our health responses. And I, I hope the U.S. can find a path that is not identity politics,
1: to move out of this, yeah, well, that's not going to happen anytime too soon. But getting back to sort of the expectations, of the policy problem of the day, the policy problem of the day right now is is getting the vaccine, getting the second vaccine into in people. So one of the big questions is how soon do it, does one get that second shot? Because we now have studies that say that twelve weeks is the most efficacious for some of the shots, but and maybe for the mixing. On the other hand, you know, would you rather have the, you know. For you doing the math, is it better to have a population that has waited 12 weeks so they're all at max max efficiency? Or would it be better to get them into the arms sooner so that way maybe they fall short of being max, but there's still a higher resistance to the the variance?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends where you're going. It depends where you're at, what your what's your local epidemiology? If you have very few cases and very little exposure, then you may be best to wait mm-hmm. until response. If you are in a setting where you're at risk of ongoing transmission of something like the Delta variant, where there is some data suggesting lower efficacy, considerably lower efficacy after just a first dose, then you do want to get those second doses out. But in the meantime, you if that's really what you think, then you also really need to be tamping that down by you know, very proactive measures around contact tracing and testing where you do have that variant. Because if you, if you think you have a variant where most of your population isn't vaccinated and you want to reopen and not roll out distancing, then you know you got to do something about that. So I think it does depend where you're going with with vaccination and where you're at. To me, from the transmission dynamics point of view, getting the vast majority of people with one dose and planning to get a second dose so really working on that vaccine enthusiasm vaccine acceptance is the most important thing so so i would say you know the current you said the policy question of the day is getting second doses out i think it's really important to get second doses out i would say the policy questions of the day are you know bigger ones than that even are how can we reach more than 90 percent of canadians to get them intending to vaccinate, vaccinating with both doses. How can we plan for, you know, how can we make a plan B in case, you know, the 95% probability of this being great doesn't happen. And I don't know for sure that it's 95%, but there is some small chance that this virus evolves to something that can get into vaccinated individuals and can spread among them and cause severe enough disease to be like a new kind of COVID pandemic. It's kind of like a new pandemic, but one that is cloaked by the current one because it'll test positive in the same way. It'll look the same. It'll, so it won't be like, whoa, brand new virus. We better know better that. It'll look like the thing we're, we're used. So I think, I think those are the two, you know, big questions for me is getting to that, you know, policy questions, getting to that 90, 95% of our population getting two doses, and then figuring out a plan B for preparedness for the evolution that may come next. And we hope it won't but it might. And then I guess we have the international, uh, you know, we can't, we can't not mention the the policy challenges around the fact that the world has not been vaccinated even when Canada has, and, and we need to be contributing to that. But we're a small country, but we do need to be making a, a strong effort for Canada to contributing to that piece.
1: Yeah, I thought it was appropriate that you had some sort of fire truck or, or police car go past your building at the time where you're talking about plan B, because yeah. I'm, I'm not very confident that there's, there are folks, you know, in power thinking about plan B at this point in time. I mean, I, there are policy solutions for getting people closer to 95%, which is, you know, require, you know, if you want to be in university or elementary school, you need to have proof of vaccination. I and mean, that's that's the way to get to, you know, a higher percentage, make it required. And I, I guess, I don't know if you've done studies about differences between requirement and not requirement, because I guess some people are concerned if you make it required, it's going to turn people off, but.
2: Yeah, so my understanding is in Canada, we do not have the legal frameworks to require vaccination. In fact, in some settings we can't even ask people if they're vaccinated in the childhood setting we can schools do ask and actually data are available for for example vancouver coastal health you can see school by school what portion of students are vaccinated against the different childhood vaccines In the regular program, as long as there's enough numbers that it's not identifiable. But for adult vaccines, our universities have been told you can't require it across Canada. I think it's unclear whether we are even able to ask our students for that health information. Mm -hmm. It is private health information whether they've been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. So that does present a challenge for reopening. And I think it's something we're. Places are going to have to manage because workplaces will be much safer if everyone in them is vaccinated. They may also not be able to require their employees to be vaccinated, and maybe that's reasonable. These vaccines are under emergency authorization, and and it is a personal choice, and and we need to be respectful of that. But on the other hand, as a society, we want to reopen, and we'll be in the best position we can to reopen if 90 plus percent of us uh, are vaccinated. And I think you know the other piece is if we reopen and we don't have enough people vaccinated that we don't see rises in cases, what will happen is we'll see rises and those who have not been vaccinated will be at risk of achieving their immunity the other way, the bad way. They may still get immunity, but they may get it through being infected rather than through being vaccinated. And arguably that's you know that's a risk that people get to choose as adults whether to take but also arguably we as a society need to make vaccines convenient accessible we need Mm -hmm. to connect with communities we need to link up with community leaders and and others who will make sure that everyone really does have a choice and really does have the best information that they can
1: well i've kept you long enough from all the other things you must be doing these days. I really appreciate the time you've taken. I really appreciate the work that you've done because I think the modeling work that you're doing is really important. And it's, you know, it, even if the politicians sometimes don't do what the, that the models tell them to do, at least now we know that they had the information and they chose badly. And that's that's useful from an accountability standpoint, even if it's not useful from a, how do we slow or stop this disease standpoint?
2: Thank you. Yeah, I think models don't necessarily tell us what to do, but they can lay out what the choices are and what the impacts of those choices might be.
1: Well, that's a challenge. I mean, the the reason why, you know, we can't just have scientists run everything is that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson drives every political scientist crazy by talking about how if we just left the scientists to do it, but they're competing values and they're tradeoffs. They're very difficult choices to be made. But if we know what the advice is and we know what the math tells us are the the tradeoffs, then we can evaluate the tradeoff that the politicians made those decisions. Knowing, you know, it's one thing last March going, well, we don't really know how this thing's transmitted, so we don't know whether to close the airports. It's another thing to say this February, well, the variants are hitting us, but we're going to open up anyway. The mathematicians tell us that we're crazy, but we're going to do it anyway. That that makes it easier to evaluate the performance of our of our leadership.
2: Yeah, I suppose so.
1: Anyway, I really appreciate the time you've had, uh, had with us today. Good luck. Hopefully. We'll be able to talk to you, you know, a year down the road, and we'll talk about how your ma- your models become far more optimistic as we move forward. I look forward to that. Thank you. For this week's R&R segment, I've got a batch of silly stuff because we certainly need it. Uh, The first is Jolt, a Kate Beckinsale movie, which is about a woman who has an anger management problem. And so the way she deals with it is she has a system on her body that she pushes, that shocks her into being calm. I'm not sure that really works. But she basically is engaged in large amounts of violence, through uh, trying to right wrongs and such. And it's, uh, it's a fun, dumb, incredibly dumb, but fun movie. A second thing, I was reminded because I've got one of my uh, ne- my nephew is, is now doing catering on weekends to, to pay for some of his bills. And, and so it reminded me of uh, the TV show Party Down, which was has only like 12 episodes or so across two seasons, but is a delightful comedy about the shenanigans that caterers and the folks that they're catering get involved in. Uh, so Party Down was an excellent show in its time. I wish it were to come back. It has a great cast of fun people, and so I recommend that. And finally, a new show, uh, Surreal Estate. It's one word, a play on real estate, because it features a real estate company who specializes in haunted houses. And it's uh, actually shot in Newfoundland and Labrador, so it's based in Canada. And it stars Tim Rosen, who uh, was Doc Holliday in the show Wynonna Warp, Warp, which was a fa- favorite of ours, Surreal Estate features a different house or two every week that has a problem and they have to identify it and they have to try to figure out a way to, to solve the, the haunting so that way they can then make a profit off the sale of the house. And so we've only been watching a few episodes, but it's been a delightful diversion. And uh, again, made in Canada. So enjoy that and be well and be vaccinated. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address, at CDSNRCDS, or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.